This morning, this morning I was in a robe. That was the first time in over 20 years as a pastor I've preached in a robe. Tonight I'm in a shirt and tie. Invite a guy from the coast again to come up here and I might be in dock shorts and, and sandals. So you've been warned, okay? Uh, I have a different, different work clothes now that I'm ministering on the coast than I used to. Brothers and sisters, I want to invite you to turn, if you will, to Matthew 9. Matthew 9, verses 35 to 38. As you turn, I'll say again um, how thankful I am, Stephanie and I are, to be here. Um, Knox, when he was introducing me this morning, mentioned that, that I was born and raised in Alabama, and that is true. Uh, it's important in Mississippi to, to drop your Mississippi bona fides sometimes, so I will say that my mom grew up in Brookhaven in Port Gibson. And my, grandf- my, my dad um, and my grandfather on that side uh, w- grew up and lived their whole life before my dad went off to Mississippi State uh, in Laurel, Mississippi. So for us coming, when we went to reunions and Thanksgivings and things like that, it was just down the road in Laurel. So it is where Stephanie and I are enjoying being back in Mississippi and renewing some of those connections. Um, as we turn here to, in the Word to Matthew 9... Uh, this evening, I want to talk to you uh, in this, amid this missions conference, as you, even as you think about global missions and, and those kinds of things, I want to <clears throat> begin to have a conversation with you simply asking this question. Why does God have you here, you individually, and this church? Why does God have you here? What does he want with this church? What is the message that he wants not only you to send missionaries out for, and, and the, those that have shared today, we're thankful for them and their ministry, and, and my wife and I are benefiting from your support and your teaming with us, but beyond just sending others out, how does he want you to go and engage with the culture around you, and what is the message that we are to take to this world, or, or let me put it even more simply, let me put it like this, if we, are, if we claim to love Jesus Christ and to be those who are his followers and wanting to be like him, well, then shouldn't we love what Jesus loves? That begs the question, what does Jesus love? First of all, Jesus loves the church. The church is his body, his bride, his family. And Jesus loves the church unfailingly, even when loving her can be so hard. We all know the difficulties at times of loving brothers and sisters within the church. But, but this evening I want to take that idea of, G, of Jesus loving the church and I want to turn it outward because there is there's something else that Jesus loves. He loves his church and he loves the lost. So I want, to, I want us to turn and, and really begin to discuss something tonight This morning I tried to lay out the gospel that that there is a God who pursues sinners. Well, having been pursued, how does Jesus want us to turn and and learn to love the lost that he loves so completely? And if we're honest, it's not an easy topic because all of us believe in evangelism. If you're a member of a PCA church, and I'm not asking, I asked for a response earlier this morning, but... You don't have to raise, you know, if I said, who believes in evangelism, we'd all raise our hands. 
And then if I said, who thinks somebody else should do it? You know, it's hard. We, we don't, evangelism makes us uncomfortable and, and, and we think it should happen, but just not us. And my friends, in view of the mercy of God, tonight I want to hold before you that that is a response that those who claim to follow Jesus are not allowed to have. So look with me at this text. This text speaks of the heart of our Savior. It speaks of what moves him. And it's a text in a heart and a a passion that I pray will move us more and more as well. Matthew 9, starting in verse 35, we're going to read through verse 38. Follow with me, for this is the word of God. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is God's word. Let's, let's pray together. Father, again, come and take over this time. You are the one who is accomplishing the great commission in our very midst and we pray, Lord, that, that although you don't need us, we pray that you would be pleased to use us, that your kingdom would come, and that one day there would be around the throne a, a, a group, a crowd that nobody can number from every race and tribe and tongue and people group. And we pray that that would reach worldwide and next door. That's in your name that we pray. Amen. I want to share a story and point us to a reality that we're all going to be familiar with. And and I'm going to speak about something that has become very political, unfortunately. I do not speak of it for political reasons. We've all seen time and time again the horror and the violence of the mass shootings that have plagued our nation for years now. Last summer, there was one at a mall in Indiana that, that unfolded like so many others, a guy went into a bathroom with a bag and, and pulled out a rifle and came out into the food court and started shooting innocent people. But this one was different. While everybody else, I, I cannot imagine what it would be like to be in a setting like that, and I, I don't want to traumatize anybody, but, but imagine, you know, if just think for a minute, you're, you're there and you're enjoying the Sabaro's pizza or whatever, and suddenly people are being shot around you, and everybody screamed and ran away except for one young man who while everybody else was running from the danger, he turned and went toward it. One young man who even used his own body to shield others while they were seeking safety. And one young man who engaged the shooter and eliminated the threat. And again, my my point is not at all to be political in that or Second Amendment in that or anything. That's That's a separate discussion for a different time. But imagine what it would be like to be somebody who, when everybody else is running away, turns and runs toward, turns and engages. He had to be afraid, but he didn't let it stop him. And we marvel at that kind of heroism. 
people wanted to have interviews with him and they, they wanted, who is this guy and how could he do that? And, and as much as that kind of heroism is to be applauded, one who would willingly expose himself to the attack of, of, of an enemy and one who knew that in doing so there was a very good chance that he might die, but, but one who, who would not let innocent people be hurt without standing in the way and taking decisive action. And we marvel at that. But I want to speak to you tonight of an even greater hero. One who chose to go where he otherwise would not have wanted to go. One who willingly exposed himself to the attack of the enemy so that he could shield and protect others whom he was rescuing. One who knew that not only in doing so, not only that he might die, but that he surely would die. But one who died to defeat the enemy and to rescue those whom he loved. Those whom he knew were pinned down and helpless and dying under the attack of a deadly enemy. And in looking at that hero, I want to see how he points the way for us. How we who are in his footsteps, we are called to be running not from people, but toward them. We, we talked this morning about the warning of day and the danger of the reality of sin. And we are to be doing that with people who are <coughs> harassed and helpless in this fallen world. We are to be warning them that, that hell itself awaits them in this life and in the life to come. We are also to be incredibly loving and compassionate and welcoming and rescuing of people whose lives are, are so broken, so lost, and so far from God. People who are afraid that we will reject them as sinners. And again, like I said this morning, too often with good reasons, so they don't, they don't come to us, they don't share with us. I am thankful for this church and for the, for the historical foundation that this church has had, that you have stood for so many generations for the truth of the word and the truth of the gospel. But the simple fact is that, that gone are the days where the lost are wandering into our churches. Our culture has shifted where the lost are not coming to us anymore. And so ultimately I want to speak to you tonight about how we are called and privileged to go to them and to speak with life-saving intent. How we as a church are to carry the words of Jesus in the ways of Jesus, which means toward them and for them, to those who are harassed and helpless and lost. I'm speaking about evangelism, of course, but, but in order to even do that, in order to even begin to engage with this, the first reality is that we need to even see the lost around us. Now, let me say up front, and, and I hope... Having built some relationship and some trust this morning, Lord willing, I hope you can, you can trust me when tonight I say that my goal tonight is not to offend, but it is to step on some toes. But in doing that, I have to offer my own large feet first as the ones who, who need to be stepped on first and foremost. We in the church who can so often speak of and and have campaigns for and give for wanting the lost to be saved. But then we live as if we are too busy for the lost around us. 
Not so with Jesus. Look again at verse 35. It says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Jesus goes through the towns and he's, he's preaching and he's healing. Why? What, what, what is it that when, when he does that and you think of the story is how Jesus would go and he would he would heal a blind man or a, or a lame woman and a, he, w- he would raise somebody from the dead and he would heal their disease. And, and what happens is exactly what you would expect. Word gets out. And, and, he, and the, the lost begin to come and they begin to respond and the crowds are there. And, and what does Jesus do? He heals them. When I was in seminary, we took an entire course on the miracles of Jesus and the reasons that Jesus did miracles. And there are all sorts of eschatological reasons. And he was proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom and he was showing himself as the Messiah and the Son of Man and all these things that Jesus is validating when he heals. All of those are true. I would submit to you that there's an even more fundamental reason why Jesus healed people. He cared about them. He he had compassion on them. And, And so... Jesus sees them and he heals them, but he also knew that he, could, he knew that he could heal all of their diseases, and eventually they would still die and go to hell. But if they hear the good news, the gospel, though they will have troubles in this life, if they believe the gospel, if they are brought to life in the gospel, then they will live forever with him. And as Jesus looks at the crowds, he is moved by what he sees. And I wonder, how often in comparison do we see the crowds and not really see them at all? At our soccer games, at our school meetings, at our work, we pass by, brothers and sisters, we pass by people every day. You rub shoulders with them every day. And we don't take the time to stop and consider their eternal destiny. Think with me for a minute about the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's it's found in, in Luke 10, but you don't have to turn there. You're familiar with it. We speak of this parable to our children and our VBSs and <coughs> veggie tales and all that. You know, we know the parable of the Good Samaritan. And, and usually, usually when we tell that story, there's, you know, the guy, the, the guy gets beat up. And, and he's lying in the ditch and he's dying. And, and then here comes a priest and a Levite. And if you were to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan with a soundtrack, whenever they show up, that, that's when the music would turn dark and ominous and evil. Dum, 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 you know, because here's the bad guys, right? What I want to submit to you is that the priest and the Levite who saw the man in the ditch were not evil men. They were simply religious people who were doing what their system made it so easy for them to do. There was the, the text in Luke 10 says that the man was near death. And there's a, there was a law that prevented a, a priest from, from touching a dead body. And if he tried to help and the man died, then the priest would be unclean. Which would mean that he would have to miss a week of work. There would be a financial cost. Probably even more importantly, there would be a a social cost because to be reinstated, he would have to go with all the other 
lepers and ill people, sick people, and he have to line up outside the temple for another priest to examine him and to announce him clean. And there'd be the embarrassment of standing there in line and people going, what, what are you doing here? Aren't, aren't you a priest? His co-workers and his peers would probably laugh at him. And, and so this man was doing what was entirely reasonable. It, was, it would cost him, again, financially, he would have to make sacrifices. Red heifers are, are not cheap. And so in the end, he passed right by and pretended not to see, pretended not to hear the cries for help because his system made it so easy for him to do. And my friends, tonight I want to tell you, ours does the same thing. How often can we, like the priest in the story of the Good Samaritan, we, we go out of our way to pass to the other side. We have our t-shirts and our Bibles and our Christian music and our conferences and our bumper stickers and, and all of these things that we do that we proclaim that we know Christ and we proclaim that we love him. But how often do we pass right by those who are in physical need or economic or spiritual? How often do we refuse to see or to hear or, or to take time to, to reach out in love to those who are spiritually broken and, and lying in a ditch? And, and, and I look, I know, I know we're busy. There's, there's bills to pay and there's repairs to be made and there's errands to be run and, and kids and sports and there's always more to do. There's just so much on my plate, and, and I want the lost to be saved. I, I just don't have time personally. But my friends, what is the reason why God has his church and his, his bride in this world? What is our purpose in this life? What, what is the response to the grace of the gospel that, that should well up within us? I wonder, will we be willing to take time away from what is not eternal? The acquisition of more things, the acquisition of more comfort, more security. Will we be willing to risk it all if it's what it takes? To simply care about the eternal lives of those around us. And yes, even that should begin with our families and our children but, but also, I'm talking about eternity in the lives and the faces of the people that we simply pass by every day. They may be strangers to us, but they are not to God. They were made in His image, and they are precious to Him. Are we willing to even see them? And if we do, if the Lord begins to open our eyes and we begin to see, then are we willing to let our hearts break for them as Jesus' heart breaks for them? Let me allude to the story of the Good Samaritan again. After the priest and the Levite have passed by, why did the Samaritan stop? I told you you didn't have to look up Luke 10, but, but when he stops and he sees the man beaten and lying in the ditch and bloodied, and in Luke 10, verse 33, it says he saw him and he had compassion on him. Sound familiar? It's the same word that's used for Jesus here. Jesus, who, by the way, is the real good Samaritan, the great Samaritan, if you will. 
It's what Jesus is modeling in this passage. Uh, Matthew 9, verse 36, it says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It's the same word. When he saw the crowds, the crowds are easy to see. We, we see them every day, but yet we become numb. But when Jesus, he really saw them. He saw them for <coughs> what they were. He saw them for who they are. And in seeing them, he had compassion. The Greek word there, the word in the original, literally for, the, for compassion, we would literally, if we were translating it in, in the most direct way possible, we would say Jesus was broken hearted for them. He really cared. And that's what makes all the difference. My friends, and again, putting my own self out there, how long has it been since our hearts have been broken when we consider the eternal destinies of those around us? The biblical Christian understands that people are eternal and they are fallen. We are all by nature sinful, evil, and in rebellion from God and and separated from God because we're sinners. And as Jesus saw the crowds, they were harassed and helpless. Notice it says, like sheep without a shepherd. Think of that image. We, we saw it this, this morning in the parables this morning of the sheep that, that is wandered off and alone and now is in great danger because there's enemies all around. My friends, hear me when I say this. If you don't hear anything else tonight, hear this. The lost around us the lost people that we pass by and rub shoulders with or in our families or at work, the lost around us, the non-Christians, are not the enemy. Hear that. The non-Christians around us are not the enemy. Even when they hate us, even when they reject us, even when they persecute us, they are not the enemy. There is an enemy who comes and seeks to kill and destroy, Jesus says in John 10. But the lost around us are not the enemy. To know that, look at the terms that the Bible uses for them. They're lost. They're blind. They are dead in their sins. Or here in, in this passage, they are harassed and helpless. Do we care? Are we willing to have compassion on them? I mentioned this morning that in the call that we have to Ocean Springs, it is a church planting call, but first it's a missions and evangelistic call. And one of the verses that that our core group is already adopting for for our work there and our ministry there is 1 Thessalonians 2.8 that says this, we loved you so much that we shared with you not only the gospel, it is the gospel, it's always about the gospel, but it says we shared not only the gospel but our lives as well because you become so dear to us. And, and you, you might want to object. You might say, but Mark, don't you see what's going on on the news? Don't you see how crazy it's getting out there? Or, or, or even locally, you, know, you wouldn't believe what my crazy neighbor said or does or is into. How, how am I to make a bridge for the gospel to them? You wouldn't believe it. Yes, I would. 
I've had that same crazy neighbor. Okay, I've been there. And Jesus said it is for the lost sheep of this world that he came to die. What about us? Are we willing to die to ourselves and to our comfort and our agendas, to our schedules that are so busy? Are we willing to really see and to really hear, to really care? Will we have compassion? My friends, can I, can I be honest with you in all of this? I don't, even, even as I'm saying we're called to Ocean Springs to be evangelists on the coast, and even as I say God is filling the sails there like nothing I've ever seen, and, and he's bringing the lost, and, they're, and they're, they're, we're building relationships, but I don't consider myself a great evangelist. We were talking about this some with the missions team at lunch, at how what the Lord has given by his grace is, a, is an ability from him for us to be approachable to the lost. For them to come to me, for them to feel like they can share, for them to feel like I can, that, that I care. Can I be honest with you further? There are some times when I'm out and it's at the end of the day and I'm tired and, and someone says, hey, aren't you a pastor? Can we talk? And there's some, it's just, sometimes it's just been one of those days and I'm tired and I'm stressed and I'm rushed and, and there's times when they say, aren't you a pastor, that I want to say, no, not tonight. I'm off duty. Can I be even more honest with you? There are times that I've blown it bad. Once last, last year, before we moved down to Ocean Springs, Stephanie and I were still living in Birmingham wrapping up our ministry there. And, and there, it had just been one of those days. You know, pastors have those days too. And, and it just, you know, just everything at the church was going wrong and, and, and I didn't want to sit in one more meeting and I didn't want to have one more discussion. It, just, it had just been one of those days. And so in Birmingham, when you want to get away, uh, Harry Reader, a friend from Briarwood, says that when, you know, people ask him about his church, he says, well, my my church is up and down. They're up in the mountains and down at the beach. And and that's the way it is from Birmingham. And so it was just, I had to get out. I called Stephanie. She was actually out of town. The kids were all uh, gone. And I said, babe, I just got to get out. I got to go. So I jumped in the car and I was just going to do a quick road trip down to the beach, get a little water therapy, you know? And so I jumped in the car. I'm going as fast as I can. I may have broken a speed limit or two, I will confess. But I just, I was trying to get to the beach as fast as I could. So fast that I didn't check the gas level before I left. And I'm about an hour, an hour and a half south of Birmingham. And I look down and my car is saying, not just that I need gas, but I need gas now. It's not an option. I have to pull over now. You're about an hour and a half south of Birmingham on I-65. If you've ever done that drive, you can sort of triangulate with where I'm going with this. An hour and a half south of Birmingham is Montgomery. And I'm on the south side of Montgomery. Just speaking honestly with you, the south side of Montgomery is not where you want to stop and get gas. I didn't have a choice. My car wouldn't let me choose. I couldn't go any further. So I pulled over at the exit and went to the, stopped at a gas station and, I, and I'm not even out of my car yet, and here he comes. You know the guy I'm talking about. The scuzzy little guy who lives at the gas station. 
you know, and he was coming and I knew what he was going to say and he was going to ask for something, you know, and, and, and so I, I got out of the car and I just, I was over it and I got, and I, and I was, you know, I'm not the smallest guy in the world. So I, I sort of got out of the car and I sort of raised up and I, and I looked at him and I went, no, yeah, you're awake now, aren't you? Okay. I, no, I don't want to hear it. Don't bother me. And he sort of shrunk his shoulders and walked over and he sat down outside. The, you know, there's always that little gro- grocery there at the gas station these days. And he, he just sort of sat down on the curb and sat there. Now I'm filling up my car trying to get to the beach. And the whole, you know what the Lord's doing with me the whole time I'm filling up? It was the longest fill up in the history of the world. I just want to get done and get on the road and the Lord wouldn't let me. And, the whole, and now I know what I've got to do. So I walked, finished filling up, paid for the gas, walked over to him, and I said, Sir, I said, I am sorry. You did not deserve that. He said, Here, you know, I, you know, we've been there. You don't, you know, not to give somebody cash. I said, But here, let me, let me, let me buy you something to eat. So we went in, I got him a sandwich and a drink and some chips, you know, just it was small. Sat down with him on the curb for a few minutes and asked his story and listened to him while he ate. And then when he was done, he looked at me and he said, so tell me, he said, what do you do? What's your job? If ever I've wanted to lie about being a pastor, that was the moment. But I couldn't. I looked at him and I said, I'm a a preacher. I'm a pastor. And with grace that I didn't deserve, he said, I thought you might be. I thought I could see Jesus in you. He was probably being more like Jesus than I was. He was giving me grace that was, that was beyond the moment. There have been some times, there have been times, just sometimes where, where by taking the time to show up and to be present with people and to hang out where they are and, and learning to ask some questions, that's what we're doing in Ocean Springs and, and the Government Street Bar District there, to learn to ask their stories and to really listen And there have been times that I had the sweetest, most awesome, most holy privilege, the privilege to be there with him in in that moment of crisis when eternity hangs in the balance and they are crying out for God. I've stood there with a deputy who had just finished his his night shift and and he'd come home to an empty house where while he was at work, his wife had cleaned out the entire house, all the furniture and the dog and the kids and everything. And she left a note on the floor because there wasn't anywhere else to leave it. She left a note on the floor that said, I'm gone and don't try to find me. And I stood there with that deputy as he said, what am I supposed to do now? I've been in the bar in Government Street while a guy who told me about all of his new age beliefs and everything and then said, you know, I'm doing all this because I'm listening for the voice of God and I haven't heard it yet. And then he went on to say, you know, maybe what I'm really looking for is the voice of a father because my father rejected me when he found out I was gay and now I don't know where to go. What do you think of that? I've been there with the waitress at Waffle House, this, this older grandmotherly type lady who was, who was telling Stephanie me about her family and about how she had recently brought her granddaughter to live with her because her son could no longer take care of the child because, because her son was so hooked on drugs and other things. 
And now this older lady is trying to take care of a 12-year-old granddaughter, but she said that the granddaughter had started to cut herself in her skin because as a way of trying to deal with the trauma and the abuse that she'd been through. And the waitress looked us in the eyes and said, could Jesus really love a family as messed up as ours? If you will really take the time, if you'll just stop and listen, if you'll just say, tell me your story, they are dying to share. My friends, when, when people feel like we, we really care about them, then they will unburden themselves and they will trust you like you wouldn't believe. The image of God is crying out through the lives of people around us and we've missed it because we've been in such a hurry. Are we willing to stop, to slow down, to really care? It, it sounds, I hope, glorious coming from a pulpit but the reality is so often much more difficult to be in the, it, because to, to really engage with lost people means that you're going to be in the middle of messy, broken relationships. It means that we will love people who are so hard to love, that we will embrace, again, referring to this, this morning, prodigals covered in mud and filth, but, but to have our hearts matched to God's heart is to know something so beautiful and so precious in our own lives that we can then take and share the grace of the gospel with others. And again, I should warn you, people out there, people who aren't in our churches, that they won't come to you as neat, wrapped up packages ready to just pray the sinner's prayer and, and sit down in the pew and be good Christians. They will be broken. They will be needy. They will make self-defeating, frustrating choices. They will say things that, that will make you uncomfortable. And often they will do it on purpose. Hear me on that again. It will get messy and we have to engage anyway. They will not talk like us and sound like us and act like us. Often they will not smell like us. They might get mud and blood on our carpet and on our lives, and it may be that they are doing that for the specific intentional reason of seeing how we will react. We get shocked and offended and, and pull back and say, well, you're not acting very Christian, like all the other religious people they've known in their lives, people who brought only judgment, not the message of Jesus in the manner of Jesus. Will we be like that, my friends? Or will we look with the eyes of Jesus and see with the, the heart of Jesus in a rushed and hectic world, will we realize that being Christian is about loving God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and then loving others more than we love ourselves when we're just loving our own comforts and our own agendas? Will we be willing to come out of ourselves for a little while and let the lost in? Will we have the compassion of Jesus for those who are harassed and helpless? Will we look and believe what the Bible says is where all of this ends? I, I alluded to it earlier, the promise that, that one day there will be, there will be around the throne people from every race and tribe and nation and tongue and people group. And God will fulfill his great promise. <coughs> he will fulfill his great commission. It is simply our calling and our privilege to be part of him doing so through us. My friends, we don't have to invent it. 
We don't have to figure out a new technique. Jesus is the owner and the architect and the designer of, of this church. And he's the one who says what she should be about. Let me, I, I know we're just building a friendship here, but, but let me lean in even more closely. I understand that this church has been going through some tough times. And I realize that there are hurts that are represented in this room. And, and believe me, I grieve for you and, and I grieve with you for the way division can come into a church. And next thing you know, the fights are all that we see. Do you want to know the way forward? By God's grace, in view of God's gospel, in view of the mercy of Jesus Christ, get back to the basics. Get back to the first calling. Get back to doing what Jesus himself says is at the very heart and core and vision of what he came to do and what he said he came to be about. Loving the church and loving the lost. It is the way of our Savior and it is also the way of people who themselves are grateful for the grace that we have received. See, when we read here, when Jesus saw the crowds, they were harassed and helpless. Do we remember? That was me. And it would still be me apart from the rescuing compassion of Jesus Christ. Do we recognize from what we have been saved? Are we grateful? Are we moved? So that in view of God's mercy, we will offer our own lives as living sacrifices. To live as those who've been plucked from the sea and who are now going with the life-preserving grace of the gospel to those who are still drowning in the waves. Will we remember that was me and he saved me and now I want to be part of saving them. There was a group of school children who in the middle of the day were leaving school to go to a museum for a field trip. And the museum was just a few blocks away from the school, and their school was downtown, so, so they lined up and they, they began walking down the city street to, to uh, the museum. They lined up just like school children do, like little ducks all in a row. You know, everybody's sort of holding hands, one in front, one behind. And they went walking down the street to the museum on this day of August 6th. 1945 in Hiroshima, Japan. And as the line went around a corner, everybody around, around the front turned the corner and there was one little girl in the back. The very last one in line was a little girl named Machiko holding the hands. And as everybody went around the corner and in a flash, they were gone. Machiko was around the corner and so she was spared from the flash and the initial blast but she was not spared from the heat and the fire that was to come. And a few days later, when the American infantry came in and when the newsreels came in and people began to see for the first time what had been wrought upon Hiroshima, the images came back to the United States of a little girl who had been so badly burned. And the cry of a nation went out. A nation that knew of Pearl Harbor a, a, a nation that knew of the evils of Bataan and, and the horrific war crimes and all that had happened. A nation that had lost so much. But when they saw the images of the little girl, the cry went out, 
bring her to us. Bring her back. Let's rescue her. Let's save her. And so she was brought to the United States. And she was saved. And she lived a long and healthy life here. She actually died just a few years ago as an old lady. The nation crying out with compassion and mercy for the rescue of one who was in such danger. Because they'd seen what the fire could do. My friends, that was for a fire that lasted seconds. In the truth of Scripture, we follow, we who follow Jesus know of a fire that lasts for eternity. And its effects are even being felt now. Do you not, with the knowledge of what, of what the fire can do, do you not have compassion on the lost? If you had somehow been able to, to be there that day in Hiroshima, been able to speak in, you would have looked at Machiko and, and her friends and you would have said, run, run. Despite all the hurt, despite all the wrong, despite all the evil and the sin, you would have screamed, run, the fire is coming. Our God in compassion speaks no less through you to this world. To see them and to have compassion on them and to say it doesn't have to be this way. There is a Savior, so run. Run from the fire and run to the cross and find the grace of Jesus Christ. Will we share it? Pray with me. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, thank you that because you knew of the fate that awaited us, you did not remain unmoved. You did not just stay in heaven and remain untouched. You came and felt what we feel. You suffered what we suffer and so much more. You came to take our sin on your own back so that we would know the salvation that comes through your grace and love and mercy. Lord, may we know it well. May this church be founded on it. And may we not be those who hold back, but make us those who listen and who share and who care with the very compassion of Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.